Good morning, friends. We're glad that you're here. Um, happy St. Patrick's Day. I don't know if anyone else is like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Irish heritage, but um, I'm going to read, let's see, this is Psalm 107, 1 through 9. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others he has redeemed you from your enemies. For he has gathered the exiles from many lands, from east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in the wilderness, lost and homeless, hungry and thirsty. They nearly died. Lord, help, they cried out in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distress. He led them straight to safety, to a city where they could live. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Do you worship with us? Stand with us if you're able. Good morning, Regen. Hello. I'm glad to see your faces. Hi, hi, hi. I'm Kyle. I'm the pastor here. And uh, good to see you. Full house this morning. I like that. That's awesome. So uh, a little bit about Regen. Our mission is to interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. What does that look like? Uh, it looks like calling people into community. It looks like calling people into discipleship or apprenticeship with Jesus. Um, and so we're really excited about what God's been doing in the life of our church over the last six months or year or so. And one of the things I wanted to tell you about uh, is that on Thursday, March 28th, yep, at 7 p.m., uh, we're going to be doing a prayer night right here uh, in this space for about an hour. And, and here's why. Um, really trying to get a sense from the Lord where we're going next. And we really, as a staff and leadership team, want to invite more people into that than just the six or seven of us that are usually sitting in a room kind of making those discussions happen. And so on Thursday, the 28th at seven, we'll be here to pray. Um, if you don't like praying out loud, that is just something you will eventually have to get over. But for right now, for right now, we will structure that night so that if you are not super comfortable with praying with others, uh, you won't be too, too, too uncomfortable. Um, there'll be some individual stuff, some small group stuff, some large group stuff, some small group stuff, um, and we'll be together for about an hour uh, because we're really looking at next year as a church family and trying to figure out what's going on, and we're really trying to increase the spiritual temperature and what Jesus is doing, and so we're going to pray together. So Thursday the 28th at 7, if you want to be here, we'd love to have you. Um, uh, one of the things that we do as a community, the way that we interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus is through a simple Facebook check-in. And so if you check in on your social media using the hashtag RegenGives, we generate a micro donation on your behalf to a worthy cause or person. And this worthy person this time around is our very own Candace Cooper. Candace is looking to head back to the missions field in Thailand uh, sometime in the impending, though not immediate, though not very far off future. And so uh, we're going to support her in that way. Um, we're doing these, if you're familiar with Regen doing this, we used to do it once a month, and we're actually kind of spreading them out quarter by quarter to give us more time to be embedded in what it is. So we'll have four check-in causes over this year, and we're stoked about that. Uh, I'm going to 
hand it over to Dan Stewart, who's going to talk about Student Circle. Student Circle is our community for uh, students, grades 6 through 12. And uh, Dan is part of our unit that leads that team. So he's going to talk about that for a second. Boom. So we are starting um, a new program called Youth Alpha. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Alpha. It's, uh, well, I'll have a video in a second. But we are starting that on Sunday the 31st of this month by going to Extreme Air. So invite your friends and your families. And it's not just for youth people. It's for everybody. Is that right? Yeah, invite all the youth people, invite your friends, like anyone can come, um, and that's, you can do both. Yes. <laughs> um, but um, that's going to kick off our new program, Youth Alpha, which I have a video, and... Okay, you rolling? Okay, we're going to scare Jason with this spider. Come on, we're going to get him back. Watch it! Guys, this is a film set. You got it. Tons of things happen in our lives every day. And in a 24-hour period, we ask ourselves so many different questions. Like, what should I eat? What should I wear? Or who should I hang out with? Sometimes we ask bigger questions, like, what do I want to be when I grow up? Who will I marry? Or where will I live? But every once in a while, we ask ourselves those even bigger questions. Questions like, why am I here? What's my purpose? And is there more to life than this? The reality is, there aren't a lot of places we can go to explore life's biggest questions. So, on Alpha, we want to create a space where we can talk about those kind of questions in a way that's open and honest. In each one of our hearts, it's like we have a happiness bucket that we're constantly trying to fill. It can sound like this. If I just had uh, more money or nicer clothes or a new girlfriend, then I'd be happy. The nights would come and the girls would be gone. Like, they'd be just me, you know, me and I guess God, right? And I'm like, okay, there's definitely more to life than this. Like, I just want, I want, I want, I want, and you don't get anything. There's this deeper, even spiritual hunger that we're all trying to satisfy. As someone who grew up in an atheistic home, I wasn't just going to accept what he was going to say. So I was like, okay, did this actually happen historically? What's the evidence? I'm not going to just buy into something because I get swept up in the emotion of it. You have approximately 570,000 hours left to live. And we want to invite you to spend less than 24 of them with us on Alpha. So I've run... At my old church, at my parents' church, I ran four Youth Alpha series, and um, first one was small, and we didn't get a lot of growth, but um, when we did it the second and third time, like, our, our group size doubled and then tripled, so we ended, we started with, like, eight kids, and then we ended with almost 40 um, on our fourth run-through, and it's basically, like, it's a a meal, a video, and a talk, and it's the, like, opening up your life to Jesus and asking all the simple questions, so it's, like, the fundamentals of Christianity. Um, low pressure, like, low risk, just come and talk and have a good time and build a relationship. 
So you'll get more information about that in the reconnect email. What is the reconnect email? It is the email that comes out every week that you should be getting. And you get that by signing up on a hey card in the back. Um, we're finding that it takes a person like six weeks from their first visit at Regen to sign up for a card. And we're trying to figure out how to shorten that. So, uh, because that's six weeks of having no idea of what's going on. So don't be that person. Um, all right, Vanessa's going to pray for our offering. Let's go ahead and pray. Um, I'm going to be passing out the buckets. After we're done praying, you can just snake them on back and we'll go from there. Uh, if you could bow your heads with me. Father, thank you so much for just how generous you are with us, how you provide for us, how you um, are so watchful of our lives. And I thank you for this opportunity to give back to you, um, even just a small part of your generosity. My prayer is that for every dollar, for every penny that goes into your hands, that you would multiply it, that you would cause more lives to be changed by you, um, by your love, by your grace, that would it would go farther than we ever could imagine. And God, in return, I just pray that you would bless every person here with, in the most important ways, physically, mentally, spiritually, in their relationships, that you would just continue to pour out your love on everybody here. Um, God, we just trust you to do that because you always do. So God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to give. And I thank you so much for um, for what you're going to do today in all of our hearts. In your precious name we pray. Amen. The phrase that just keeps coming to mind um, is that we want to become people of his presence and partners in his purposes people of his presence and partners in his purposes. God, you are moving us off of our agenda today and onto yours, onto the agenda of a kingdom that is without end, onto the agenda of a kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace, a kingdom that seeks to bless others, a kingdom that calls us into spiritual family together. You are calling us off of our agenda and onto yours. And so help us to be sensitive to that and help us to be submissive to that leading today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, kids can go back with with Kayla. Yeah, let's, let's, let's avoid the running. That's good. We have a lot of ground to cover. So grab a Bible and go to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis, first book of the Bible, easy to find. Go to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22 starts like this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. 
We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? For what felt like the millionth time, Abraham heard his son ask the question that every parent loves to hate. Are we there yet? Abraham, two of his hired men, and his beloved son Isaac had been on the road for three days. And it felt like Isaac could barely go a mile without asking, are we there yet? Usually when parents hear this question, they move from annoyed to frustrated, to downright mad. But when Abraham heard this question, time after time, step after step, mile after mile, he moved from anxiety to fear to downright terror. Isaac wanted to know where they were going. Isaac wanted to know, are we there yet? But there was a place that Abraham did not want to go. And there was a place, if Isaac knew what would happen there, he would not want to go. For the word of the Lord came to Abraham saying, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go. Go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Abraham could hardly comprehend God's words as they were spoken to him. Sacrifice? A burnt offering? My only son? What did this command say about this God? This God who had promised by an oath, by an everlasting covenant, to give Abraham as many descendants as there were stars in the sky. What did this command say about this Lord of heaven and earth? Was he a lunatic? Was he a liar? On the third day, Abraham could see over the horizon the mountain that he knew, though he didn't know how he knew, that he knew he would be asked to sacrifice his Isaac. He left his hired men behind. He journeyed on alone, father and son. Are we there yet? Isaac asked. Then, look, the fire, the wood, where's the burnt offering? Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham sighed heavily. (sighs) He looked to the sky and before he could stop himself, asked, Are we there yet? Genesis 22 begins with words that we hear a lot in our culture. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. This little phrase, testing faith, has taken on its own meaning in our churches and in our culture at large. When someone is going through a hard time, when they've received a diagnosis, when their kids are testing boundaries and crossing lines, they ask, I think God is testing me, isn't he? God must be testing my faith, they say. So we assume bad things, when they happen, are tests. And we know about tests, don't we? We know we've gone to school. We've been tested. Some tests we've passed. Others 
We failed. Is, is, did, like, Luke escape? Okay, Caitlin just moved very quickly. Okay, and I was like, I kind of want to know in case he's okay. All right, anyway. So you've gone to school. I've gone to school. We've taken tests. We've passed some of those tests. We've failed some of those tests. We have passed some tests by the hair on our chinny-chin-chin. Uh, other tests we did not see coming. Pop quizzes, anybody? So when we think of God testing my faith, we, when we read God tested Abraham's faith, our pulse increases a little bit. Just like when I was going into second period algebra and my friend coming out of first period algebra said, there's a pop quiz today. We've come to think of tests as pass or fail. You either rise to the occasion or completely fall apart. But let me offer you some grace today. When the Bible uses the word test, it does not mean the academic performance-based examination that you and I have come to associate with that word test. No, instead, when God tests someone's faith, when God tests someone's faith, is not a matter of pass or fail. It is a matter of refining and drawing out. God does not watch from heaven with a checklist in his hand, looking for us to pass or fail in certain capacities. Instead, he, he, I, I don't want you to think of that word when you hear test. I, want, I don't want you to think about sitting in algebra or history, desperately trying to recall facts that you simply don't understand. Here's what I want you to think of instead. I want you to think of when you learned how to ride a bike and your parents took off the training wheels, and they would hold, right, the bottom of the seat in their hand and walk alongside you, and eventually they would let go. That is the test. It reveals. It draws out. Some of us fell. Some of us scraped our knees. Some of us cried and cried and screamed like babies. I don't know who did that. It wasn't me. But we were not exiled from our family for failing the test. We were not kicked out of our family because we couldn't ride a bike. We've come to think of this word test badly, in partly, part because we think of it in academic performance-based terms, and in part because we don't understand what the Bible means when it uses the word test. And we started talking about this last week. We don't understand the word test because we don't understand words like faith and doubt. Last week, and if you didn't listen to last week, you're going to want to listen to it. This, by the way, is the encouragement to come to church every week because they hold together the sermons, okay, FYI. I know you got lives, but I'm just loving reminder. Random piece of paper in my pocket. Faith is not, last week we figured out, psychological certainty. It is not ramping myself up into feeling or thinking or believing a certain way. In fact, we found that faith and doubt aren't the opposites. The opposites are faith and certainty. Faith is not about psychological certainty. It's about a covenant relationship with a God who is beyond our understanding, which means that doubt and questions are part and parcel to walking with this God. Throughout the Bible, almost every biblical figure experiences something that we would recognize as doubt. Either the doubt of the head, these big theological heady questions, or doubt of the stomach, deep and painful personal questions about the character of God. And in any relationships, perhaps most especially our relationship with God, we find ourselves surprised, we find ourselves disappointed, we find ourselves frustrated, but biblical faith isn't responding to the surprise and the disappointment and this 
and the, and the hurt and the grief and even the wounding by digging in further. Biblical faith is walking with God through that surprise in covenant relationship, embracing that mystery, which is exactly what we're talking about for the next two weeks. How do we walk with God honestly and authentically through times where what we know and what we're experiencing don't match up? That is the place of lament. That is the place of wrestling in the Bible. And so we'll look very closely at a couple of Old Testament texts. But for today, for today, I want to explore a little bit more the concept of faith, this covenantal relationship, as we see it play out in the life of Abraham. So if you're reading along in your Bible, um, if you have like your phone and you've, you're at Genesis 22, scroll back to Genesis 15 or go back a couple pages to Genesis 15, especially verses 1 through 6. Verse 1 of chapter 15 of Genesis says, Sometime later the Lord spoke to Abram. God gives people in the Old Testament new names. So right now he's Abram. He spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be very great. But Abraham replied, Oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him or credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. As Abraham is making this long three-day journey to Mount Moriah, this is what's going on in Abraham's mind. What's going on in Abram's mind, what's ringing in his ears are these words that the Lord has promised Abraham. These words of blessing, these words of reward, these words of protection, all of this, these promises that God has given Abram. Most importantly, you will have as many offspring as there are stars in the sky. This is the very foundation of God's covenant relationship with Abraham. So jump down a couple verses in chapter 15 verses to verse 12, then verses 17 and 18. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The smoking fire pot and flaming torch represent God. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, God did something interesting that we don't really have time to go play by play through. But if you read Genesis 15, what you'll see is Abram gathers all of these animals and he slaughters them and he cuts them in half and he kind of lays them on either side. Imagine this aisle, there's, you know, carcasses of animals on either side and the entrails and blood are running down the middle. This is a common way to make a, con make a covenant in the Old Testament. In fact, the language, the literal word of this Hebrew, God made a covenant with Abraham, it means that God cut a covenant with Abram because something had to get cut. Covenants are always purchased in blood, which is why there is blood uh, in this one with Abram, which is why there's the blood of the firstborn children to start off the covenant with Israel in the book of Exodus, the blood of Jesus 
purchases our covenant. By the way, the foundational way that God relates to humanity, the way that God relates to you, your relationship to God is built on a covenant. It is built on a covenant. But what's super interesting about this covenant and differentiates it from other covenants made in this time of history is instead of Abram walking through the entrails and then God walking through the entrails to show Abram saying, I'm going to uphold my part of the bargain. God's going to uphold his part. God puts Abram to sleep and says, I'm going to uphold both sides of the covenant. I'm going to walk through this by myself and you're going to watch. Covenants are different than contracts. In a contract, two parties agree to behave in certain ways in order to get something mutually agreeable. In biblical covenants, there's always two parties. In biblical covenants, both parties vow to uphold their part of the covenant. But in biblical covenants, God always upholds both sides of the covenant because he knows that we ultimately cannot keep up our end of the deal. God makes a covenant with Abram. While Abram is asleep, a few chapters later, he's lying. He's pretending his wife is his sister. He has, he has sex with one of his slaves so that he can have a child that way because he doesn't trust the promises of God. God makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. By the way, there's doom and darkness there. He says, this is what I'm going to do. For you. You're going to be my people. I will be your God. Here is the law I would like you to upkeep. Israel says yes, and five minutes later, they take all their gold and melt it into a calf and worship it while Moses isn't looking. Our end of the new covenant as the people of Jesus is this. Love one another as I have loved you. Moment of reflection. How you doing? What's interesting about the covenants that God makes is that they are initiated solely by him. He upholds his end of the covenant and our end of the covenant on the basis of his character and his promises. In God's covenant with his people, whether that be Abraham or the Israelites of thousands of years ago, or you or me, listen to this, God binds himself by his own oath to keep his own promises. In a covenant relationship that we have with God, God has bound himself to his own promises by his own oath. God, on the basis of his character and his promises, says, I'm going to bind myself to these. What I have promised, I will do. And the word that scripture uses to define this part of God's character, why would the infinite God of the universe limit himself to relationship with us? Why would he limit himself to keeping his own promises? Scripture asks this all the time in Deuteronomy. The answer to the book is, because he loves you. Why does he love you? It says, because he loves you. Why has the Lord made us the object of what the Bible calls his hesed, his steadfast love? Read the book of Deuteronomy, and the answer is because he has. In the words of Exodus 34, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When we say covenant relationship... What I'm saying is that the God of the universe, on his own initiative, because of the great love with which he loved us, has bound himself in relationship to us by his own oath with his own promises. God has not called you to a business transaction. You believe these things and do these things, and I will give you a happy life. 
God has not instigated a contract with us. He has instigated a covenant. And he has initiated a covenant simply because he wanted to, and he keeps it despite our failure and frailty. What can separate us from the love of God? Can famine or tribulation or nakedness or sword? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through a covenantal love. It is this kind of faith, it is this kind of covenant relationship that Abraham is demonstrating as he makes his journey to the mountain that God will show him. It is this kind of covenantal relational trust that Abraham demonstrates as he climbs this mountain with his only hope for heirs and descendants, his only hope of seeing the promises of God fulfilled in his lifetime right next to him. It is that covenant of trust. It is keeping to God's character and promises that cause Abraham on the top of that mountain to stone by stone build an altar, to kindling by kindling and log by log build what is about to be a roaring fire, to bind his son in rope, to lay him on that altar, to lift that knife and to plunge it down toward his son. It is covenantal relationship that keeps him going in this moment until he hears the words, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. If you've got 22 open. Verse 12, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't hurt him in any way, for now I know that truly, you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abram looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrifices a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named the place Yahweh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use that name as a proverb on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. How is it that Abram makes this journey? How is it that he takes step after step as God has done this mysterious, surprising, and even disappointing thing? How is it that Abraham's faith does not shatter? How is it that he goes on not a one day, not a two day, but a three day journey with his son asking him time after time after time, how exactly are we going to do this? How does he go to sleep on those nights thinking I have to kill my son by my own hand? He does it on the basis of the covenant relationship he has with God because he is assured of the character and promises of God bound bound by God's own oath. The mental image that keeps coming to mind for me as I read this text is it's like you and a friend are driving next to each other and suddenly your friend slams on their brakes and all of a sudden they're nowhere next to you. That's what I feel like Abraham must have felt like. Like, what in the world is going on? And what keeps Abraham going, what keeps him pushing in, what keeps him in faith in the midst of, do you want to talk about stomach doubt? Do you want to talk about grief and confusion? Talk about Abraham hearing, sacrifice your only son as a burnt offering, and yet Abraham keeps going. Abraham keeps going. The test to which God puts Abraham is not a test to find out if Abraham has the psychological certainty, if Abraham has the psychological certainty to do what he was asked. Abraham's not hyping himself up on the way there to get it done. Instead, the test was to reveal 
and to prove and to draw out and to highlight the kind of relationship God had initiated with Abraham. When God tests us, what is ultimately revealed is not what we think or what we believe. What is ultimately revealed is who God is. Covenantal relationship means embracing the doubt that comes with a relationship with a person beyond our understanding. It means leaning into, not away from, moments of disappointment and frustration and surprise and grief and hurt and wounding. Listen, I've been with my wife for 10 years. We've been married for almost seven. There are moments where she disappoints and frustrates and hurts me. There are moments which I disappoint and surprise and frustrate and hurt her. And in those moments when I'm looking at this person thinking, I don't really understand who you are right now, what I don't do is say, I'm going to go drop divorce papers now. What I don't do is say, this is over because the contract that we agreed to, I'm not meeting it. I don't lean away or escape from. Instead, in this relationship, I lean in to further embrace and understand who this person is. That is covenantal relationship. That's what we see Abraham doing here. The problem with making faith about psychological certainty is that it makes our faith a house of cards. When we have a contract with God, I will believe certain things and do certain things. If you behave a certain way, God, and God doesn't behave the way that we agreed to, our house of cards comes tumbling down. Here's a story that we've all heard. A Jesus-loving, faithful 18-year-old heads off to college, and in the first few weeks of their Biology 101 course, they renounce their faith. Why does this happen? Well, they were raised in a church, they were raised in a family that said the Bible clearly teaches that God made the world and all there is in six literal 24-hour periods some 5,000 years ago. They were raised in a church and a family that said, the Bible clearly teaches this. This is clearly the definition of what Genesis 1 means. And if Genesis 1 can't be trusted, the rest of the Bible can't be trusted. And so they go to this Biology 101 course. And by the way, this is not the movie God's Not Dead. This is not some atheist professor trying to wreck the faith of any person. This is just a teacher who is presenting the evidence which is compelling and overwhelming to this person, to this student. But because they have been taught that God did this thing, because they have built their faith on a house of cards around this one thing, the minute they experience doubt, the house of cards comes tumbling down. Because they are forced to choose between what they see as an excellent argument for evolution versus the faith that they were raised in. And so they walk away. Because they weren't in a covenant relationship with God. They were in a contract. I'll believe and do these things if you do these things. And when they voided their part of the contract, they had to walk away from the Lord. Here's another story. A Jesus-loving married couple in their 20s keeps having miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. And they've prayed and they've prayed and they've prayed. They've even had prophetic words spoken over them that their pregnancies will bear fruit. And yet, uh, every after just a few weeks, they lose the baby. And so they come to doubt everything they've ever been taught about the goodness and character of God. So given the choice between their experience and the songs that they sing and the way they've read the Bible, they, they can't keep up with the certainty anymore, so they walk away. And the house of cards has come laying down because they said, we will do these things and believe these things, God, if you do these things. And God didn't do these things. 
when we make our faith about psychological certainty, we are dooming ourselves and those in our churches to be absolutely destroyed by suffering and absolutely destroyed by honest, fair, intellectual questions. When we make faith about an agreement to a set of principles, a set of beliefs, instead of about a relationship with the living God, we are inviting people to build their faith out of a house of cards. And we're asking them to build a house of cards on a 737 in turbulence next to a toddler who just keeps wanting to swipe the cards away. The Bible invites us into something far more complex. Invites us into something, God invites us into something far more mysterious, into a covenant relationship with a God beyond our understanding, a God who makes above all things his character and his promises remarkably clear to us and then walks with us into situations where his character and his promises seem like something we bought on the shopping channel at three in the morning. Flimsy and cheap and totally unnecessary. My experience with this, by the way, that story about this young couple on their 20s could have been Kyle and Steph after the number of miscarriages we had. And the, what changed it for us, what changed it for us was when I was tempted to believe that after all that we had experienced, God's goodness must mean quantifiably less than what we had experienced. What I came to wrestle with is that God's goodness must mean more than I had understood it to be. Because I'm in a covenant relationship with God, and I feel like God totally whiffed, totally missed it. I trust to his character and his promises. I trust to his character and his promises, knowing that he has bound himself by his own oath to those promises. Listen, when Steph disappoints me or frustrates me and things don't work out like I think they should, I don't walk away because my relationship with Steph is not built on certainty. It's built on covenant. It's built on covenant. I vowed before my friends and family to keep to a certain way. I vowed. I bound myself by my own oath to my own promises. The good news is that God is different than us. He cannot break his own promises. He cannot break his own oath. What, when we have this covenantal faith, it makes our faith, un, it doesn't make us so easily wrecked by doubt. Instead, when we experience head doubt or stomach doubt, it's like that quote we saw from George MacDonald last week. A man may be haunted with doubts and only grow thereby in faith. Doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. They are the first knock at our door of things that are not yet but have to be understood. I wonder what would have happened when the doubts knocked on this 18-year-old Jesus-loving person in her biology 101 class, when doubts knocked at the door, I wonder what would have happened if when she called home to her parents and to her pastor and said, I'm beginning to doubt this whole, the earth was created 5,000 years ago in six 24-hour periods thing. I wonder what would have happened if instead of ridicule, instead of parents being snarky about, well, if you don't believe that, why do you believe anything else? I wonder what would have happened if the parents would have said, that's a really good question. Let's wrestle through that together. I wonder what would have happened to this Jesus-loving 20-something couple or anybody walking through significant periods of suffering. I wonder what would happen if they were given permission to and language for lament and yelling at God. Which, by the way, lament psalms make up almost half of the Old Testament songbook. You're mad at God, so is about half of the Bible. I wonder what would have happened if when they were confused and hurt, if they'd been given permission to lament instead of dig down deeper and sing the happy praise songs. 
So at this point, I want to talk for just a second about doctrine and theology, because both of those are important. Um, I read theology books for fun, um, which makes me very weird, I know. Um, I read theology books for fun, and so should you, um, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. How do we integrate doctrine and dogma into a covenantal relationship with God? Because, and here's where it starts. First of all, we do not believe in doctrines. We believe in God. So I do not believe in justification by faith. I believe in a God who justifies. I do not believe a certain mode of creation. I believe that God creates. I believe in a creator God. I do not believe in penal substitutionary atonement. These are all words you maybe do not know, and that's okay. I believe in a God who substitutes himself for people that he loves. We do not have a relationship with doctrines. We have a relationship with a person. And what is most important, friends, in this idea of covenant relationship faith is that it is actually relational, which for Kyle boils down to this idea of concentric circles, which, by the way, I'm stealing from a guy named Greg Boyd, who's really smart. So in the center, you see that cross. Cross is means Jesus. Um, here's the most important question that lies in that center circle, and it's, it has to be in the center, is do you love Jesus? guy in our community has said to me, I don't know if I want to be a Christian, but I do want to be an apprentice of Jesus. Sounds like a deal. Because I actually don't know if I like being a Christian either. Um, but I do very much like following Jesus. Um, I have this question that I ask people, and by the way, I've asked it to people in their 20s, 40s, 60s, and beyond. Um, when, they, when somebody starts dating somebody, we'll say, my wife and I ask this question. It's our number one discipleship question. When somebody says, I started dating this, this guy or this girl. My question is, do they love Jesus? And uh, you know why? People don't like me when I ask that question. <laughs> do you know why? Because the answer, well, they go to church sometimes, is not an answer. Listen, if you've not decided that you love Jesus, I am so glad that you're here. And the only thing we want for you as a church is for you to fall in love with Jesus. And if you're a dude and that makes you uncomfortable, it's also like praying out loud. You're just going to need to get over it. Um, do we love Jesus? Do we have an ongoing and vibrant and life-giving and loving relationship with Jesus? Can I tell you something I've been thinking about? I've been thinking about, and maybe I mentioned this last week. I've been thinking about lately, because somebody got me thinking about this, that they did not have a Bible, that the early Christians didn't have a Bible. The New Testament wasn't written yet, and they didn't own, they couldn't just run down to the Bible bookstore and grab a copy of the Old Testament, because most of them couldn't read. There was no Christian radio. There were no devotionals. There was no Our Daily Bread. There were no apps. There was no Bible app. Um... And yet these people had a loving, ongoing, life-giving, vibrant relationship with Jesus. Don't let the stuff get in the way. Okay. Do you love Jesus? That's at our center. That's what it means to be in covenantal relationship. What happens, what, what makes our faith a house of cards is when some of these outer ring thingies get into the center ring. So dogma is the next level out. Dogma is what I would define as what Christians at all times and in all places have always believed. That's outlined in things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and some confessions of faith. 
I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. It goes on. If you do not believe Jesus was born of a virgin, that's fine. Just don't say you're a Christian, because you're not. If you don't believe that Jesus, in accordance with the scriptures, was rose again from the dead on the third day, and not a metaphorical rising, but like a bodily, literal rising, you can believe that. You just can't also be a Christian. Dogma are these essentials to our faith, right? Dogma are the things that if I don't believe them, I'm no longer a Christian, okay? God is the creator of life, right? Doctrine, doctrine are the things that divide theological tribes and denominations. So Calvinism, Arminianism, predestination, free will. Um, Women can preach on a Sunday morning. Women can't preach on a Sunday morning. Women can be a pastor. Women can't be a pastor. Um, uh, The world was created in six 24-hour periods. The world was created by theistic evolution. The sign gifts of the Holy Spirit, miracles, tongues, and healing are not for today. The sign gifts of the Holy Spirit, miracle, tongues, and healing are for today. Doctrine are those things that kind of associate us as tribes, right? And so we're still Christians because we hold the dogma and we love Jesus, but we have some doctrinal differences. Then on the outside of that ring is opinion. Okay, let me give you some things that are opinions. Um, Singing choruses in church or singing hymns in church? Playing the organ in church or playing guitar in church? Homeschooling our kids, sending our kids to public school. Um, The Bible is a, here's an opinion that's a bad one. The Bible, uh, the book of Revelation is about America. Sorry. Uh, An opinion, it's not a good one, but it's an opinion. Um, There was a guy in our church in Illinois who thought church membership was unbiblical. Okay, cool. It's a great opinion. Um, Here's what's interesting. Do you notice that the further outside the circle we go, the more yelling there is. Okay? The further outside the circle you go, the more frustration tends to ensue. And when something on those outer three rings makes it into the center ring, we lose it. See, this this kid that went off to college at 18, here's what had actually happened. In their excitement about six-day literal creation that they were raised with in their church and in their family, somewhere Jesus got lost. And so it was more about believing in a God who created the world in six 24-hour periods than loving Jesus. And so when that got taken out from them, they didn't have any faith anymore. What would have happened if they had loved Jesus for Jesus, been confronted with those questions, and said, I can still love Jesus while having these questions? That's, that's what I'm articulating to you this morning, is that we will have problems when something on the outside of the circle gets into the center right? Especially doctrine and opinion. Especially doctrine and opinion. I don't find a lot of Christians yelling about the divinity of Jesus anymore. That's a good thing. Um, but when we, when we lose love for Jesus, when we lose that steadfast covenantal relationship, we have a problem. Let me end with this. <clears throat> As Abraham took his journey to this unknown destination, which by the way, did you catch that? Go sacrifice your son, and I'll tell you when you get there. Okay, thanks. It's the second time that's happened to Abraham. When Abraham took his journey to an unknown mountain, 
he, he, he was confused, he was surprised, he had to be disappointed, but he took that journey every step of the way, believing in God's character and promises, probably imperfectly, almost definitely imperfectly. He did so understanding that God had bound himself to his own promises with his own oath. Abraham built that altar and laid his son on that altar because he knew that God had bound himself to his own promises with his own oath. The surprise and the disappointment and the mystery did not stop Abraham. Instead, and and his house of cards does not come tumbling down because there is no house of cards. Instead, by keeping the character and promises of God before him, Abraham put one foot after another in a journey best described in 2 Corinthians 5-7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. If we walk by sight, we will never actually walk with God. If we walk with our faith defined by one political party or another, if we walk by our faith defined by our opinions, if we walk with our faith defined by doctrine, if we walk with our faith defined uh, by our doubt and our questions, if we walk by our faith defined by our doubts of the stomach, we will not walk by faith. We will be left hanging. But if we walk by faith, if we walk hand in hand with God through this life of surprise and disappointment, if we walk through this life of surprise and disappointment with the God of the universe who is beyond our understanding, that is walking with faith. On the other side of our doubts, on the other side of our questions is something deeper. Let's pray. Lord, come and help us with our unbelief, would you? Because we got plenty of that. We got plenty of unbelief. But we invite you to speak to us in the midst of that. We invite you to be fully yourself. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that I love about our practice of coming to the table every week is it kind of recenters us on what is most vital. Um, and I'm going to yell now. Covenants are forever. That's a unique thing about covenants, they're forever. And so, may you walk by faith and not by sight this week. I'm so glad to be part of your spiritual family, and I love you so much. We'll see you next week.